0: well good evening everyone it's great to be back with you and I must confess I've been looking forward all week to preaching on Nehemiah I have never preached on Nehemiah before um, but there's a first time for everything so it uh, it will be a, a great uh, experience for me at least um, hopefully for you as well but we'll get to the point of looking at this subject of Nehemiah this man Nehemiah and asking themselves a, a massive question is your life is my life a life used by God. As the uh, notes are hanging around, just stick to the first page. Don't go rushing ahead, um, but uh, we'll stick to, to that. And we're going to focus tonight on a wall builder. We're going to focus tonight on somebody that God used to build a wall. And I'm just waiting for my... No, I was waiting for my PowerPoint to click over, but my esteemed colleague as well is also... Uh, Kev, you just advance the uh, the slide over if you don't uh, don't mind. We're talking tonight about a wall builder. No, 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 not him. We're talking about somebody that actually built uh, a wall. And so we're going to see tonight that his life, and we're going to be introduced to his life, uh, for many of you for the umpteenth time, I'm sure, you've heard people preach on Nehemiah. But it is a great subject, and uh, we're going to look at it uh, in detail tonight. So let's read then our, our, our little section, or quite large section rather, of uh, Nehemiah, we're going to start at uh, at verse 1, and we're going to read down to chapter 2 and verse 10, and this morning I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version. (coughs) So Nehemiah 1, starting at verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hacliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with a certain man from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who who had escaped and who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel which have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcast in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the hearts. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I have given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through uh, until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Father, these amazing words at this beginning of his amazing story. Father, help us to understand them. Help us to get to grips with them. And more importantly, help us to get uh, a real sense of you speaking through us. Father, as we answer this question, is my life a life used by God? Thank you for Nehemiah and for his willingness to go. Help us to learn and quieten our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So, C.S. Lewis... CS Lewis said, hardship prepares an ordinary person for an extraordinary destiny. Hardship prepares an ordinary person for an extraordinary destiny. If you want one concise quote, go to CS Lewis. If you want one concise quote of Nehemiah's life, you've just found it. Hardship often prepares an ordinary person for an extraordinary destiny. You see, the checkered story of the kings and their disastrous rule had been a contributing factor in the downfall of Israel. Look at a country in moral decay and look straight at its leadership and ask the question, what kind of leadership, what type of leadership have we had up until this point? Picture the scene. It's the year 586 BC. The Babylonians have just marched out of the city of Jerusalem, leaving burning buildings, burning gates, They've taken away the best, the brightest, and they've left behind the poor and the weak. Solomon's temple lies smashed in ruins. The gates are burning, the walls are demolished, and only the sick and the poor remain. The rest of the people are forced on a journey through thousands of miles of desolate desert to the distant land of Babylon. The words of God had come true as a result of the people's disobedience to him. So here is your first blank to fill in on your, pa- on your sheet and I will say this very slowly because I need to get it absolutely right. I wonder how many godly people amongst the captives ask themselves, if God is against us, who can be for us? If God is against us, who can be for us? You see, it's a big question. It's a huge question in terms of the people of Israel. They are God's chosen people, and yet God's word has come true that I will scatter you among the nations. I will scatter you among the people. Be honest with yourself. How many of you would have asked that question? If God is against us, who can be for us? You see, not all is lost. And the story we continue with tonight is set at the start of a new period in Israel's history. And at its outset of a series of post-exilic texts which chart the return of Israel to Jerusalem. In some respects, it is a rebirth for God's people. You see, the umbrella of the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah is that we can see the hand of God at work in you bring about repair and restoration to the people of Israel. You see, verse 1 starts with the words of Nehemiah, son of Halakai. Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. You want to put that in modern day? Nehemiah was Mr Carson. Nehemiah was the butler. He was the king's trusted confidant. Your next line is, he was a trusted man. He was a trusted man in the palace. And he would have had the ear of the king and the respect of the king's closest aides and confidants. He would have also been loyal to the king. And what we can glean from the rest of the story of Nehemiah is that ultimately he was loyal to his God is that no matter what life throw at him as you look through the next 13 chapters or so of nehemiah you will find a man who is unswervingly systematically and without cessation loyal to his god he was a man who lived in the palace and gave it all up to save his people does that sound familiar to you need i remind you that we have a savior who left the palaces of heaven the thrones of heaven to rescue his people. You see, we can see that from every generation, is the next blank on your sheet. Every generation, God will equip trusted servants for effective leadership. In Nehemiah is a chosen person to lead a people that were emerging from the trauma of exile. They are stunned and uncertain people who may very well be doubting God's interest in them at all. If God is against us who can be for us you see his biggest job is well documented the fact that he had to go and rebuild the city yeah his even bigger job is one of those underlying particles of a story he had to go and restore the people's faith in God there would have been people that would have said no come on God's not interested in us we're not God's people look at us We're this far-flung nation of scattered people that have been enslaved, we've been beaten, we've been brutalized. We're not God's people. And yet it was Nehemiah's job to go and restore the people's faith in God. You see, the first section of Nehemiah's account is written in the first person and it jumps out of the pages. And unlike Ezra, he is a formidable and tremendously practical character. You will see that as you study this book, there are these underlying themes, these underlying uh, uh, pieces of, that, that fit uh, over the story of Nehemiah. They are Nehemiah's doctrine of God, his passion for Scripture, and as Steve has already alluded to, his experience of prayer and his example in leadership. He teaches us that God is holy and that God is unique and that he is universally sovereign. He teaches that God is unswervingly reliable, and that he is compassionately merciful, uniquely powerful, and infinitely gracious. And perhaps the most important attribute of all for this post exilic people is that he is intimately near. Mm. You see, the story of Nehemiah may have been set to a backdrop of 2,500 years ago. Yet, as with every part of scripture, you can apply it to the present day. Think it to the society that we live in this constantly fluctuating movement of people. We've seen governments rise and fall. We have seen astounding technological advancements, the rise of Eastern religions, and particularly Islam. And Nehemiah had to cope with major social, geographic, and vocational changes. And we are a society that is unfortunately becoming more and more individual. We are happy to talk to our computers and our phones, but we're not happy to talk to our next door neighbor. I see it every day at work, every day. I get on a train, I walk into a coach and every single person, bar a handful, is on some form of device or another. And every single person that gets on a train, walks, walks into a coach and wants a table of four to themselves. Preferably sitting in the window, preferably face in front. And woe betide anybody that gets in the way of stopping them from getting there. This individualistic society. Why do you think people, what do you, what did you think one is a, one of the biggest things that people are looking for the most? I'll give you a clue. It's always on any property programme. You will hear this word. Community. You watch any property programme and the first thing that a couple or an individual will, will say when they're looking for a house is, we want to be in a feel, or we want to have a feel of community. Yet, we are becoming more and more individualistic. We are becoming more and more self-centered. You see, Nehemiah, however, is the contrary to that fact. And he's a man who puts the needs of others before his own. He suffered social antagonism, persistent ridicule. And if you said it against the words of today, he he would suffer under the regime of liberal bigotry that we mentioned this morning, who will stop at nothing, to hang the people of God or, or people who have any form of conservative or, or Christian viewpoint. Look at the voice of the LGBT group. You've only got to look at it. And look at the power that that small amount of group of people have. And you tell me that as Christians we're not suffering the same opposition. If you mention anything... Speak out against any minority group. You stand up and you say that I don't believe in gay marriage and you are hounded as embracing hate and you are are hounded as a person who is a bigot. No, 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 dear friend. We simply have a difference of opinion. Let's get the facts right. Let's get it clear. There is a difference of opinion. And see, Nehemiah was exactly the same. Nehemiah suffered exactly the same thing as you will look at through this book. You see, you mention anything of that, you're a homophobe. You mention anything of that, you're a bigot. You mention anything of that, and your Christian stance or viewpoint has no place in modern-day thinking. So Nehemiah, then, he leaves the palace with his guards and his high walls to go and work in a city that he's never seen before, thousands of miles from home. And ultimately, his, his story is one where God does amazing things in the lives of those who put him first. So move forward a little bit. It's now the winter of the year 446 BC. A relative of Nehemiah's called Hanani and another person comes to tell Nehemiah the sad news from home. He comes to tell him the sad news from home. And it says this, I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who would survive the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Here is the bleakest of bleak pictures. If you're Nehemiah, imagine the emotion. If you imagine the wave of emotion that comes over you, hearing that this has happened to the city of your forefathers. This has happened to the city that you call your ancestral home. And yet here, his reaction shows this deep sense of loss and grief over what has happened to his beloved city. The text doesn't say, but you could imagine just the silence and the emptiness of sound in that room, that the relatives finish, and Nehemiah just sits and takes in. He tries to take stock of everything that's happened. As he has learned what happens to the city and what's happened to its people. But his priorities are clear from the start. And he has to do something about it. He has to do something about the plight of his people. He is Lord Shaftesbury, George Muller and William Wilberforce all wrapped up in one wall building package. This is Nehemiah. And he does what every Christian should do in the face of a challenge. He prioritised his mission with prayer. He prioritised his mission with prayer. You see he prays but he also puts prayers into action. He puts his faith and his trust in God to do something about the desperate situation. But remember that faith without action is dead. So he starts then rebuilding ruins. He starts rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. He starts rebuilding, or rather the plan to go and rebuild the ruins. It is not just the fact that he prays, but look at how he prays. He weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays before his words, the God of heaven. What you will notice about the pair is the fact that he is more interested in the people. He is more interested in the people rather than the city. You see, the main event of this story is rebuilding the walls. Nehemiah. Everybody knows Nehemiah. If you know the story of Nehemiah, you know him for rebuilding the walls of the city. But when you really get into the breakdown detail of the passage you will see that Nehemiah is more interested in rebuilding the faith of the people in the city rather than the city itself. You see, the Bible is a tale of two cities. We have Babylon and Jerusalem. But when you strip it all away and you take away that fact that what God is really interested in is rebuilding the faith and rebuilding the people of that city. And this is exactly what happens in Nehemiah's story that here is a man who is more interested in rebuilding the people rather than the city itself. You see, Nehemiah almost reminds God, as if such a thing were possible, about the promise that he makes. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. After nearly 70 years in exile, God has promised to restore his people and to restore their lands did Nehemiah think God wasn't the keeper's promise who knows would you blame him if he did look at the picture he was faced with we've just heard about the destruction of the city the gates are burnt and not left standing yet Nehemiah was absolutely committed to prayer let's make this personal what about our prayer life what about our prayer life do we do as Thessalonians says and pray without ceasing or we just offer up quick prayers when we've tried everything else and we can't think of anything else to do. I would suggest that every single one of us has been guilty of that at one point or another. Look at the example of Nehemiah. Nothing mattered more than entering God's presence to express his anguish for the people's position. And more importantly to seek guidance on what he must, done, must be done about it. We, we have a, countless examples of prayer. Not just in Nehemiah's story, but the whole of scripture Jesus himself drew away to a mountain to pray. Jesus himself drew away onto the mountain to pray. So why then is a church prayer meeting often the least well attended? Let's make this real. Let's make it apply right to where we're sat now. I don't know about your church prayer meetings. I've never been to one. But I have been to plenty in other churches. And I can tell you the church prayer meeting is the thing that is least attended. Why? 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 Because I personally think, and you might feel this is unfairly critical, but I personally think that there are Christians out there that have an attitude of his only prayer. It's not important. It's not feeding me. I'm not gaining something from it. I'm not being taught by it. I'm not being wowed by it. Really? Because a prayer changed your life. Mm. You're not being wowed by it. You're not feeling it. It's not quite right rubbish a prayer changed your life and it changed the life of every person in that church that you are with don't let the prayer meeting be the first thing that gets dis- dis- uh, discarded when you're looking at a church program it's vital mm. you want to see how strong a church is turn up to a midweek prayer meeting it's all right coming on a sunday when you might have 80 900 people here it's all right coming on, this, on a friday night to a youth group and it's banging with kids great You want to really know what's going on in the church? Go to a midweek prayer meeting or whenever your prayer meeting might be and see what it's really like. You see, when it comes to prayer, Nehemiah's, uh, Nehemiah's model is a good starting point. You see, Nehemiah was sacrificial in his prayer. He genuinely believed that the best thing he could do for his people was pray for them. He was sacrificial. You see, he was also persistent the text said he prays day and night metaphorically he is constantly banging on god's door about what has happened to the people if someone is persistent in prayer then it makes logical sense to suggest that they are a person who is totally dependent on their god what does that say about us can we just do this game called life in our own strength or, do we do, what, or we do, do we do what Nehemiah does? And we're constantly banging God's door. Not with a list of requests. But when the times when we just say, God, you are amazing. God, you are awesome. God, you can do things. You can teach things. You can change situations. You can do things that nobody else can either imagine, ask, or think. What do we like? You see, Nehemiah was genuine he sat down and wept when was the last time you saw somebody in a desperate situation and you cried (laughs) oh no no Ashley, we're British we don't do things like that come on this this upper lip isn't as stiff as it's got been by weeping no rubbish about three weeks ago I attended a funeral Anyway, from us, right? You're, you know, you're 30 now. You're now entering the point where funerals and weddings are your social networks. That's the way that it goes. You know? Funerals, networking for the older man. That's just the way it is. You see, but this funeral was different because it was for a little chap called Theo. And Theo was 30 weeks old when he died. And he was the son of some really close friends of Claire and I who aren't Christians. What do you say? You don't say anything. I just sat and wept. You know, I like to consider a fact I'm pretty tough. It takes a lot to make me cry. But I sat there and I wept. We saw them in a desperate situation. Their son has died. And with me sticks this hideous picture of a man who was a pride naval officer. Go to the back of a hearse. And pick out a small blue box containing the body of his son. What hope does he have? What hope does that family have? We need to go back and we need to be genuine. And I mean genuinely praying for people, genuinely wrestling with God as Jacob did over the fact that we need to be praying cons- uh, sacrificially, persistently, and genuinely. But you see, what we can also come across with is the fact that Nehemiah was confident in his prayer. He knew that God would answer him. And more importantly, he knew that God would rescue and restore his people. You see, therefore, Nehemiah was encouraged by prayer. And one commentator said this about Nehemiah's prayer. He prayed deliberately. Rather, his prayer deliberately echoes the petitions of Moses, Solomon, David, Daniel... You want a list of people that prayed and his contemporary Ezra. And if by prayer these intercessors had received cleansing, found peace, obtained strength, and gained confidence, so could Nehemiah. And let me put one little caveat with that. So can we. You see, but while the quote speaks directly of Nehemiah's model of prayer, his life and his diligence, I want you to challenge yourself with this. Can I replace Nehemiah's name with Mine. You see, Nehemiah has played diligently before God, and now he is about to see God at work. You see, he faces a new task, and he needs to get permission from the king to go and do his work in Jerusalem. I mentioned earlier that Nehemiah was a cupbearer, and he had the trust of the king. The cupbearer was the man that tasted the wine before the king drank it. What for? To check for poisons. Nehemiah was a trusted man. And he faced a new task. He had to put his life on the line every mealtime or every time the king fancied a drink. Every time. So the king had his utmost trust. You see, the dates of the story of of Nehemiah earlier on are, are mentioned quite frequently. And so now, four to five months later, the king grants Nehemiah permission to go to leave his post and to start his new work for God. The king notices Nehemiah's downcast face and asks, as any of us would, with a friend or a confidant, what's wrong? You see, a servant's private life in that day and this would never be broadcast before their employer. So Nehemiah had to manage carefully. He had to manage this next little section very carefully. Mess this up and there's no other opportunity. You see, Nehemiah handles the situation wisely and he does exactly what Esther did in a time before. He brought it up as a personal issue rather than a political issue. You see, Nehemiah had also picked his moment wisely, as it would appear that they were in private, but the fact that the queen was there, and the queen wouldn't necessarily have been with the king in all his public engagements. So he lays it out very plainly that he wants to go and he wants to rebuild. He is to carry out the promise of God that he would never forget the Israelites. You see, even though they have been spread to the other empire and only the sick, lame, and the poor were left, God would remember his people. You see, God was at work behind the scenes. God was at work behind the scenes, doing what God does better than anybody or anything else, putting the right people in the right places at the right time for the right job. You see, we all face events, uncertainty, hurt, pain, doubt, suffering, and at all times... There are times when God feels distant. But you can be assured that when all these things come along, and it's the same sentence that I said this morning, it is God that brings hope when life hurts most, and a hope when life couldn't be any worse. You see, whatever life throws at us, behind the scenes is a God who is unchanging, immovable, unshakable, unwavering, dependable, gracious and merciful, a God who is working for the good of those who love him. We worship a God as a father who wants the best for his children even when we cannot understand or we cannot see what god's plan is the, f- the decisive factor in the king's relinquishing of nehemiah to go and rebuild the cities was giving him that right of protection that he- nehemiah says that thy king granted me what i asked for for the good hand of my god was upon me you see he gave him all the right protection he gave him the detachment of soldiers to go with uh, Nehemiah, Nehemiah's faith as bold as it was rather it was the object of Nehemiah's faith his faith in God he believed in God and trusted him enough to ask the king I also think that Nehemiah picked his moment and got it just right we should have the same confidence genuine confidence persistence want and desire to be diligent when it comes to putting our faith and our trust in in god you see so just as we've listed those prayers of the the characteristics of nehemiah's prayer life we now realize that nehemiah also waited on god nehemiah was a man who waited on god he trusted in god he had confidence in god and ultimately he testifies to the goodness of god you see, what is interesting to notice is the fact that there's two differences of opinions between Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra regarded the soldiers as a lack of confidence in God, yet Nehemiah thought they were an example of God's provision. Here's a very practical lesson for us to learn that Christians, and this might surprise you, will not always agree on every tiny minute detail of what the Bible says. That's just the way it is. But Paul gives us, you talk about a nice little concise summary of how to deal with it. It's to deal with it just as Paul said and stop passing judgment on him, Johnny. So Nehemiah had testified to the goodness of God and the rest of the book is devoted to the fact that God had upheld his promises. We testify to the fact that God has saved us through the redeeming work of his son on the cross. That's what we're going to do later. We're going to testify to the fact by taking uh, bread and wine as Jesus instructed us to, to do this in remembrance of me. We are testifying to the fact that he has done the work. On our behalf. You see, Nehemiah is convinced that the only reason the king granted his request was because what does it say? The hand of my God was upon me. We are convinced that one day all this world will fall away and that we will be taken with him as we consider this morning and we will be like him, we will be changed, and we will spend eternity with him. What are we listening for? The trumpet call of God. You see, trouble isn't far away from Nehemiah and as he goes to see and inspect the walls but God has a plan and there's nothing or anybody that can stop it so as you look through Nehemiah as you learn more about the man who attempted great things for God keep this one challenge with you throughout the whole book is there anything stopping me from attempting great things for God is my life a life used by God is there anything I do to trust God enough to do something about it The biggest mistake we are often guilty of of making when it comes to serving our God is assuming that we cannot do very much. You see, God has used, uh, the most in the world's eyes, insignificant of people to do amazing things. Don't underestimate what God can do through you. Don't ever underestimate what God can do through you. Nehemiah's life was a life used by God. And as we go out into this week as we go out into the rest of the story of Nehemiah, as you go out into leading your everyday life, answer the question at the bottom of your sheet, truthfully and honestly, is my life a life used by God? That was a challenge that Nehemiah set. That is a challenge that the word of God sets. And my prayer that as you read through the rest of this book, you get to grips with this fascinating story of Nehemiah and just what God did through that one man is that you will realise That there is no end to the possibility of amazing things that God can do with your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this evening. that We've just been able to to look at something new, something afresh. Father, it's a story that I'm sure many of us have read many times. Yet, Father, every time we look at your word and every time we open your Bible, you teach us something new from it father help us to get to grips with the story of nehemiah help us to get to grips with the fact that we are a people with a responsibility a responsibility to serve their god and father help us with your mighty strength power and wisdom and guidance to be the people that live lives that are used by god for his glory and for his name's sake amen